Welcome to episode 27 of Dope Nostalgia. I'm your host, Naomi. Thank you for joining me on these trips that we take back into the 90s and visiting some of the stars of the day, the big hits, the big sounds, the big artists, and we have so much fun doing it. So thank you for all your good feedback. Make sure you guys write us, um, send us your old and crazy pictures from your hair back in the day, the clothes you wore. We want to see it all. So share with us on our social media. All of the social media links are shared at the very end of the show. And also our Patreon, patreon.com slash dope nostalgia is where you can subscribe to get the premium content, which means early release podcast. It also means the bonus videos. So you get to watch the whole video of the interview. Recently, I had the chance to do another stellar interview, this time with British music sensation Chesney Hawks, who also had a huge hit right here in North America with the song The One and Only. I'm going to give you a little bit of background about Chesney before we get right into it. Here you go. Wikipedia moments. Hey, one thing you may notice about the background music during these Wikipedia moments is that they don't sound exactly like the original. Why? Well, they're somewhat instrumentals. They're actually karaoke versions of the song, so they're not exactly like the original song, but that's okay. I'll be playing an original of this one later for you guys, and I think you got the hint. I think you might recognize this tune. It is the one and only by Chesney Hawks. Chesney Lee Hawks is an English pop singer, songwriter, and occasional actor. He started his career at the age of 19 when he appeared in the film Buddy's Song, which featured his best-known single, The One and Only, which topped the UK singles chart for five weeks and reached the top 10 in the United States. Two years later, Hawks released What's Wrong With This Picture, which reached number 63. He collaborated with Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne for the single Stay Away Baby Jane, which reached number 74. He released his single Another Fine Mess in 2005 to more success as it reached number 48. Hawks also appeared in the musical Can't Smile Without You as the role of Tony Lowyman, or Lowyman. I think it's Lowyman. Aside from music, he also appeared in Channel 4's The Games in 2005, winning a bronze medal. Hawks appeared on the show's Hit Me Baby One More Time, Let's Dance for Comic Relief, and Sing If You Can. One of his greatest performances was at the Cecil Doncaster during the Denmark versus England game. It was witnessed by his greatest fan, Ronnie Barker. Ron later went on to say, it was an amazing night, probably the greatest night of my life. Chesney has some great stories to share about the last few years, and he's going to tell us what he's been up to. Here you go, Chesney Hawks. I gotta keep it retro. <laughs> but now you just now you just look like you're in Canada too, so... <laughs> that's right that's right i just yeah i've got the northern lights going on for you so welcome to the show this is dope nostalgia and we talk about stuff that happened in the 90s that was amazing and you are amazing so thank you for being here um oh, bless you. you started as an actor at 19 from what i've gained from your wikipedia um what type of projects were you doing at the time um, I was always a musician, actually, to be honest. And uh, oh. I, well, no, you, you're right. You, your research is correct. Uh, <laughs> but I, um, I grew up in a very musical background. Um, my father was in a band called the Tremolos. They had many top ten hits, all, you know, over, around Europe and over here in the states as well. Um, and so I grew up with music, and that was always my love. Um, and when I was seventeen, I was already playing in 
local bars and pubs and things like that, playing piano, playing Stevie Wonder and Billy mm. Joel and uh, Elton John, John Lennon songs. Um, and I auditioned for, for the role um, of Buddy in a film starring Roger Daltrey. Ah. And the only reason I really wanted to do it is because I saw it as a, a way into uh, the music industry. Uh, you know, I thought, well, it, 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 it was a very, um, you know, musical based film where the kid, the kid I was going to be playing uh, was a songwriter and a singer. And mm. Roger uh, played my dad and I got the role. Uh, it, literally the first um, thing I'd ever gone up for as far as acting. Uh, so I, I'd never, I'd never really thought that acting was my thing at all. It hadn't even crossed my mind mm. up until that moment. Um, but then, uh, but then that film came along and uh, changed everything. Good pathway definitely to get in um so yeah you mentioned your family was very musical and your dad's band which i definitely have heard of um did you naturally progress into singing right from the beginning did you have other passions going on as a young person uh i was one of those kids that was 150 percent into music and nothing else mattered um you know I, I never had any backup plans or anything like that it was always music 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 i see it in my 14 year old son now he's, he's obsessed yeah. you know he all sleeps with his guitar and so <laughs> so that was that was me as a kid um and uh my as i said i grew up in a very rock and roll kind of background so it was all around us anyway and uh you know, the three of us kids um, were, were never going to be uh, accountants <laughs> mm. or, or any, you know, any kind of, you know, kind of what would be classed as a nine to five ordinary job. You know, my mum was a, an actress and game show host and my dad was a pop star, and, you know, and all of his uh, friends were all, you know, uh, famous singers, really. Like, you know, Jerry Marsden from Jerry and the Pacemakers was my, probably my dad's best friend and wow. all these 60s beat bands that uh, that dad kind of you know, came up with in the 60s, um, like the Searchers and the Marmalade and Herman's Hermits and all those kind of uh, great bands. Mm. They were all my dad's mates. So, uh, you know, not only was I kind of, you know, very much blood, music was in my blood, um, but I, I was, you know, fame didn't seem like a kind of an alien thing to me. I was, uh, it was, it was just there, you know. So when it came to be, you know, my turn to, to, to possibly step up, um, it didn't feel so weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you grew up in England? I did, yeah, in the south of England, uh, not far from London. Um, I was born in Windsor, actually, which is uh, famous for Windsor Castle, where the Queen lives. Yes. <laughs> not, not that I was having tea with the Queen or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me about Nick Kershaw. Now, it's funny because since I've been doing the podcast, I've heard his name so many times and referred to yeah. by, as an influence to many, um, yeah. as an incredible songwriter. Tell me about him and your um, relationship with him with the writing of your song and yeah. Well, um, I was a huge Nick Kershaw fan as a kid. Um, you know, through my teens, um, he was one of the, uh, the big influences in me uh, musically. Um, because he's so, I mean, I don't know if you know his music, but his music is so, um, uh, he's, he doesn't write in, in a kind of a, a way that you would necessarily automatically go. Um, you know, he, he's a very, very clever, very, very clever songwriting um, and an incredible guitar player, like very, mm. very underrated. Um, you know, if you talk to any musician that, that knows of him as a musician, he's one of those that, that, where they'll, they'll point him out as one of their favorites as a, yeah. as a musician. You know, he's, he, his name always comes up. He's like, he's like, you know, in the music industry, 
he's known uh, as like one of the greats you know it's just that you know I, I guess he didn't did he have hits in in Canada I don't even know yeah. I would say that they probably weren't that big because I and like with me being a when when was his heyday like when did all mid, this... mid uh, 80s 84 was mm. when he the human racing album came out and right through to 89 I kind of feel like he's one of those artists that if I heard one of his big hits I would remember yeah. it yeah but but it doesn't come to mind right away so the big one was uh, a song called wouldn't it be good okay. wouldn't it be good to be on your side there you go so you know it yeah yes perfect (laughs) yeah so he kind of had minor success here in north america i guess and people do know that song Mm -hmm. um anyway so i grew up a big fan of nicks and uh when when we were making the film um all the music had been written specifically for the film um it was a, a kind of a different project where uh, the, the scriptwriter actually, um, and the, he wrote the books, and then re- wrote the script, and he he wrote the lyrics for the songs, and then, you know, gave them out to songwriters, me included, as a young seventeen-year-old boy, and I ended up getting you know, three songs on the album. Um, but then, so so the film was made, and the, the album was was being wrapped, and uh, the record company were like, you know what, I think we might need maybe one other song. You know, <laughs> it was one of those kind of like we need the hit, you know? <laughs> and uh, oh, yeah. so, so because it was a major record uh, deal and, and there was going to be, you know, a big push on, on the film and the album and everything. Um, there was a lot of people that put that, uh, you know, were trying to get on it. And uh, my dad knew a guy who worked at um, Warner Chapel and he was having lunch with him and he, and he said, Hey, check this out. And he put it on. And if you know, Nick Kershaw, he's a very recognizable voice. So you, mm. you obviously know, I mean, you even know if it's a Nick Kershaw song, to be honest. He has that kind of style, that kind of thing that he naturally does that you always know, even his playing. Um, oh. So Dad was like, oh, well, it's obviously a new Nick Kershaw album. That's, it's my, Chesney will be happy. Um, <laughs> and he said, well, it's not actually. It, you know, he wants to take a little sabbatical and start writing and producing for other people. So Dad brought this cassette back to me. Remember those? Oh, and, yeah. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I still have uh, the songs written on the cassette there and a couple of that I'd asterisked on. And one of them was the one and only. This was the song that eventually we released. And, uh, and that, uh, the reason I wanted to do that song is because I wanted to meet Nick Kershaw. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was my driving force behind it, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so that's when we met. We met at Abbey Road where we, where we were recording. And uh, we hit it off even from those, uh, you know, early days, and 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 now we're, you know, you know, really, really good friends. And I've had I've had song my, some of my songs on his albums, and and oh, I wow. never in my albums uh, there's always a Nick Kershaw uh, song on there. And I, I've learned so much from him over the years. He's, you know, he's just a, a jewel in the crown. It's fantastic that you've developed that kind of relationship. It's a nice thing. Yeah, to we're have. now we're now kind of you know peers and and friends. Yeah. And now you mentioned Abbey Road. Now, when we think of Abbey Road, especially, well, obviously the legacy there, what's the feeling when you walk through those doors, especially for the first time you did? Had you been there before you had ever recorded your own stuff? No, no, I'd never been there. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to make, well, basically all the music for the film was, was made there before we started filming. So I spent four months at Abbey Road even before we made the film. 
And then I spent another three months after we made the film um, at Abbey Road. So I spent, you know, best part of a year there and I got to know everyone so well. But when, when you walk in the doors of Abbey Road, you can feel that legacy. You can feel it. And I recorded in every room there. I was at uh, Studio Two, which is famous for where they used to do a lot of their live recordings. You know, you, it overlooked, the control room overlooks this huge uh, studio, mm. big, huge ceilings. And, and it's all white. And, um, and you, you can kind of, you see old footage of them when they're recording Let It Be and stuff, or, or Abbey Road. And, and th there's a rumor that there's, a, there's a, a, a bullet hole somewhere in Abbey Road Studio 2 that John Lennon fired. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but but it's a magnificent place to record. All, all of the rooms there are amazing, and uh, you know I still stay in touch with with some of the uh, people that worked there when I when I was uh, making records there. And I've, I've been back there, you know, periodically over the years. And mm. uh, I mean, there's so many incredible records that, that were made there, and so many incredible artists that recorded there over the years. It was actually I heard recently because um, I was speaking to Giles Martin, and I didn't know this about about Abbey Road that it was the very first actual recording studio, like the first ever, you know, professional recording studio. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Specifically assembled for people to come yes. recording. Well, yeah, I exactly. wonder what they were doing before that. <laughs> I know, it's crazy, right? isn't it? Well, because the back thing. then, I think it was built in, in like, it started in the 50s, I think, or, or even the 40s, because mm. it, was, it was originally built for... Um, for making uh, comedy records, you know, mm. on acetate. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, back in those days, the, the engineers, they were literally uh, scientists. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> they wore literally white coats. And, and it, was, it wasn't like it is today, you know. Yeah. They all got long hair and, long hair and ponytails and tattoos. <laughs> I, I just remember even the merits of using analog tape um, yeah. And, yeah. and the sound you'd get from that and the comparison um, yeah. to, to digital. So... Yeah, you know, I still I still prefer the the feel and sound of, of analog. You know, yeah. I only only just given up the ghost of analog recently. But you know, <laughs> there's hard. still there's a lot there's a lot of uh, great studios um, out there that still have all those analog equipment. And you you record um, these days you record like the drums and bass and maybe vocals um, onto analog and then transfer mm -hmm. it over to Pro Tools. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's kind of way they do it these days.
So the song, The One and Only, was used in a lot of movies as well, wasn't it? Like, it's been in a lot of soundtracks. Yeah, it has kind of, it has, it has what I call a song with, with wings. You know, it, mm. it kind of goes out there and does its own thing. Um, it was originally, obviously, in, the, in Buddy's song, which was the film that we talked about earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, very close off the, off the back there, it, it was in um, Doc Hollywood with Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember that moment because the record was already number one all over Europe and I was traveling around doing my thing and we were thinking about releasing in, in, these, in the States. And uh, the record company over here called very excitedly to say that they've got a really good, they call it a sync, which is when you put um, music uh, in, in motion picture. Mm. And so they've got a really amazing sync uh, for the one and only in a Michael J. Fox film called Doc Hollywood. And I was excited. I have a big, I love Michael J. Fox. I was very excited about that. But the great thing about this sync, and I think it's a very, very rare thing, is that they literally played the whole song. So, I mean, normally when you get a sync, you'll get 10 seconds, 20 seconds, mm. here and there, little snippets, you know. But, I mean, the holy grail is to get the whole song. And, and uh, it was literally placed at the beginning of the movie. And it went all the way through the kind of beginning credits where, you know, three minutes and 30 seconds right to the very end of the song where he and he's driving a a red box to Porsche all the way through the beginning of the film. And then he crashes it and then the film starts. So, yeah, it was. And I think that's what put it over the edge here for me in the States. And right at the beginning means that the attention is right on it, right from the get go. So. Fantastic. Yeah, I guess I guess so. But then there's the other side of it where you think then you watch the whole film, and then you've forgotten what happened at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they do say the actual holy grail for a good sync is to have the closing credits. Oh, when you're going leaving the theater and getting into your car and, and thinking about yeah, that song. It. Yeah, what was that song at the end there? Yeah, because <laughs> by the end, That's by, true. you know, by the end of the film, you're not going to remember what happened two hours before, right? Well, maybe you will, but we are especially about then. It now. now you pull yes. out your phone and you shazam it. As soon as you can. <laughs> exactly. Or even just, you know, Google. What, what was that song at the beginning of Doc Hollywood? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. So it was a huge hit. I remember it as a kid coming on my video stations all on our much music and I just loved it. It was so catchy and fun. What was getting that first number one like? What's that feeling? Oh my God, I was so young. Um, yeah. It was, um, well, a dream come true um, for me because, I, as I said, I grew up in music and all I ever wanted to do was, was be a musician and, uh, you know, and release records as an artist. It was just something that I had as a, as a kid right through. Mm. And so for me, it, was, it really was, um, it was an incredible experience, you know. Um, you know, doing Top of the Pops, which I know is not a big thing for, for Canada, but it's I a know huge... Yeah, I know the brand. The brand is known worldwide. You know, yeah. it was a it was a BBC uh, show uh, in England that uh, we all grew up with. Right from the '60s, Top of the Pops was was the the show where you know if you if you're on Top of the Pops, you've made it. You know, mm. and I remember the first time I did that show, and I was like, "Yeah, I've done it." <laughs> That's amazing. Is, is that show still in uh, publication now? No, unfortunately, it's a thing of the past. Um, they sh- they do show old reruns now and again, but yeah, it's, it was it was a real shame, and there was a real uproar um, in the in the public in in Britain uh, mm. when that was when that was canned, uh, and I miss it actually. It was it was 
it was an in, just it wasn't particularly interesting format. It was just you know Radio One DJs, which is the the biggest radio station in in the country, mm. um, would present uh, the latest hits on TV. That was that was that was the premise, you know, and it went right back through the sixties and and became very iconic. I think the only thing we really have now for those types of um, musical event shows are more contests than anything like reality TV, mm. like, like the voice. And um, I think we've kind of lost that because of the fact that we have YouTube now and everything's so easily accessible. Yeah, no, it's true. It, it's, it's right there at our fingertips. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know what I would have done with uh, social networks uh, back then. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's, it's a very, very different world. Really? That's a question I ask a lot of people is, how do you think your career would have been different if the internet was thriving at that time? Well, the thing is my career, you know, I had an interesting beginning of my career because it was very much, I went down the heartthrob kind of, you know, route. Not that that's what I wanted to do, but the record company kind of, you know, that's what happens when you're part of the machine of the record companies. Mm -hmm. um, they kind of choose how to, to promote you. And as a young person, you just think you just kind of go along with it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but so I, I think, you know, because because it was so big, uh, you know, so quick and I had so many legions of young fans, I think maybe, um, you know, social network probably would have been good for me in a way, um, you know, because that's where where everyone is, is you know, it's, it's everyone's talking about certain things. I probably would have trended a lot back then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But um, but then again, I I I, I kind of miss the mystique of an artist, you know, the the kind of anonymity. You know, my my favorite artist is probably Prince, mm. and I think he did that. You know, he he in, intrinsically knew how that it was important to keep a mystique. You know, you never really knew what was going on in Prince's life, that's and right. I think that's a good thing. Um, and of course, these days, everyone knows what Chris Martin had for lunch. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's just very different. Yeah. Um, I, you had more control over your image and what the people saw. And that, that was true to be um, in England. Did they have the same type? They must have had the same type of teen magazines that they have mm. here in North America, like the teen beat and bop. And did you yeah. get, did you get those, those big spreads and photo shoots and stuff like that. Yeah. Too? Big posters that you pull out and put on the walls. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. The big one in England was, um, uh, a magazine called smash hits. Ah, uh, smash hits magazine was huge. Um, and if you, you know, if you got front covers of smash hits and you knew, you know, you were doing well. And I, I think I spent a whole year on the front cover of Smash Hits. <laughs> was, I had at one point I had more more front covers than any other artist in the world, um, and it, it was, you know, because that's, you know, what happens when you when you hit that kind of teen heartthrob thing. You, that, mm -hmm. you know, that's what teenagers buy. Is Smash Hits magazine. There's another one called Number One magazine, and mm -hmm. another one called Big. <laughs> and then okay. in Germany there was a. What was it called? Bravo was was the big teen magazine. Ah. The teen beat here in the states, wasn't it? Um, yeah, which I know I made a cover of a couple of times, and yeah, it was it was an in interesting because you never got like um, you know deep com in deep conversations with the journalists from Smash Hits. It was always like you know what color <laughs> underwear are you wearing? <laughs> yeah, <know. laughs> favorite food stuff like favorite that. Favorite food exactly, and do you have a girlfriend and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, 
it's different. I, get, I, I definitely uh, don't miss those interviews. I bet. And they're very repetitive, I'm sure. Oh, it's a, totally. I used, to, I used to joke about, like, when you do interviews with those kind of magazines. In fact, in general, you know, when, you, when you're on the road and promoting a record, um, you do get the same questions a lot, you know, yeah. as you can imagine. So I used to kind of have stock answers, uh, one, two, three, four, five, you know, so sometimes they'd ask a question and I had my management or record company people, then I'm like, that's number seven. And I just, <laughs> just go yeah. into it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's one thing I try to be careful about when I'm writing an interview too, is I'm thinking, okay, now Naomi, there's a lot of things that these um, people get to hear all the time. You want to try to give them something new and interesting and fun to think about and to, yeah. to answer. Um, but with the purpose of the show, going back to the old days, this is more of like a walk down memory lane. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, going back to that point though, I, I have to say, I actually, as an artist that, that does, I just literally came off a BBC interview before you and I did another one before that. I'm, I'm always doing interviews with people. And of course that some of them are fantastic and, and I get great questions and different. And some of them ask the same questions, you know, what have you been, what have you been doing for the last 25 years? You know, mm -hmm. uh, that's the classic, you know, uh, I, I always say, uh, do you want like a day by day rundown? <laughs> but, but what I love, uh, my favorite type of interviews are just conversations, mm -hmm. you know, like we're having, it's, it's okay to kind of, you know, uh, just divulge, diverse into different things. And, and, you know, you can talk, talk, if you, if something comes up, it's okay to go into that subject and, Absolutely. um, you know, and I, I love, I love that. So uh, anyway, the... I, I stopped you in the track. <laughs> Not at all. No, please continue. I was going to say pot. That's the beauty of podcasting actually. Is that's it? true. It does tend to be more of a conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, podcasts tend to be a little bit of a longer inter interview, you know, over half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. So, mm -hmm. so you get to know your subject a little bit, a little more. Um, and, and I I'll get to know you and, mm. you know, I, so I love it when I can ask you questions, <laughs> you know, it's, a, sure. it's, it's, it's <laughs> nice. It's nice. And, you know, I think, I think that people that are listening to or, or watching podcasts actually appreciate that because there's nothing more boring than question answer. Yeah. Question two answer. You know what I mean? <laughs> Podcasting also gives you the chance to state what you actually think without um, anyone coming along and twisting your words. Yes, taking things out of context and uh, you yeah. know, editing uh, and yeah, stuff like that. Absolutely, which does happen quite a lot. I'm sure you might get the odd like shady one that that might do that, but it, you really, I think, get it more of a chance to say what you think and it's yeah, nice. No, absolutely, absolutely.
After these messages, we'll be right back. Analog Brewing, winner of three awards at the 2020 Alberta Beer Awards, is a proud sponsor of the Dope Nostalgia podcast. Analog Brewing is now offering delivery within the city of Edmonton with no delivery fee on orders over 40 bucks. Go to analogbrewing.ca shop. That's www.analogbrewing.ca forward slash shop and place your order today. When placing an order, you could also pay it forward and take part in their Nurse a Pint program and prepay for a pint for a nurse. Mention this podcast in the order comments so they know we sent you. Analog Brewing, taking beer to the next level. I'm hungry. An earthquake! Yow! Newton Mole, what are you doing? Tutank Sam, I'm looking for breakfast, but it is so dark. You're in luck. My tasty Kellogg's Fruit Loops are in brighter colors. What, Sprite? Just follow my nose to the bright color of Kellogg's Fruit Loops. Now I see the shine of orange, lemon, cherry, and lime. Fruit Loops, the bright part of this nutritious breakfast. Oh, they are bright. Dig in. Ooh, who turned out the lights? A few more will turn you on. Follow your nose to a most colorful fruit taste. Did you find a different sense of achievement when you make a hit in America as opposed to at home? Absolutely. Um, I remember uh, I was on tour at the time when, when the one and only, um, you know, broke into the top 10 over here. Mm. And, you know, I had, uh, in those days, it was like, you know, the, the telex things I used to get. <laughs> and, you oh. know, it said... You know, I can't remember the telegrams. Yeah, <laughs> I remember getting yeah. a telegram from my uh, producer, who was a co-producer on, on the album, and uh, and it said like, you know, stop, because <laughs> he always used to say stop at the beginning of it. I don't know why. There must be a reason <laughs> for that. We need to look into that. Just ask Google. Yes. And it said, you're you are in the in the the Billboard top ten. Stop. <laughs> and, I, and I remember that moment when it was handed to me backstage, um, you know, after a gig. And, uh, and it was such an incredible feeling because, uh, you know, I always wanted to, to, to make it in my home country. And of course, that was always a dream. But, but to make it in the States is, is it's just like, a, you know, it, it takes it to another level. You know, mm -hmm. that, that's like, uh, and at the time, I remember there weren't that many British artists um, having success in, in America uh, or in North America, in Canada, wherever. Mm -hmm. um, and it was more, there was a couple, it was like Jesus Jones had mm -hmm. just had a big hit with that. Uh, what was this song? Right here, right now. Yes. And then uh, EMF with, uh, you're unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Our so very, those were the two. Yeah. Our very first episode was about EMF. Yeah. Of this of this show, and I. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. And I, I I was lucky enough to speak to their not their original guitar player, but their second guitar player who came into the band later. Um, and he was from I think he was from Liverpool. So I'm, yeah, I remember crossing paths with those guys uh, back in those days because obviously it was around the same time that the records were released. Um, and so we used to, you know, bump into each other at, uh, you know, TV shows in Germany or in Japan or, or in the States, you know, mm. I remember bumping into the lead singer of EMF, um, in Los Angeles at, at some, some event or something, you know, it's funny. I'm not, I'm not in touch with them now, but what my point was that, you know, when the one and only was released, um, there, there weren't that many English artists doing very well, um, over here. And so when it, when it actually did eventually, you know, become a hit, 
uh, um, it was just, it was tingles for me, tingles. Mm. Yeah. I have one regret and is that I didn't come over here and stay here for six months, a year, because I kind of let it, let it go. You know, I was, I was too busy kind of promoting other records in, in England and Europe. And, uh, and I know, you know, now I look back and I think, you know, I, I should have dedicated like six months a year to promoting and releasing records over here, especially off the back of a top 10 single, you know, mm-hmm. it was, but I, I think, um, you know, in hi- hindsight, it's a, a 2020, isn't it? You just, uh, you can, uh, you can look back on life and think, uh, was that a mistake or, you know, or, or did that lead me to something great? <laughs> Who knows if I'd have come over here, maybe I wouldn't have met my wife. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Everything happens the way it happens for a reason, and it's a difficult choice to make at the time. So, oh, yeah, I was I was bloody nineteen years old, and you know, traveling around the world as a pop star, and I I, I thought my team had it, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the thing. But uh, you know, you live and learn, and I, I I really am not one for regrets. Really, I, I I do think that everything that you've experienced in life, whether it's ups and downs kind of takes you brings you to where you are now and, and I'm definitely very happy you know mm. and I, I think I have my priorities probably right um, and if I'd have carried on having that kind of success as a young man I don't know maybe maybe people wouldn't have wanted to be around me anyway so <laughs> you never know like if you see what happens to so many young people and the number one reason I think that they fall victim to drugs and whatnot is too many yes people in their lives. Yeah. Too many people want to, be, no, want to be so connected to this artist and their fame that they'll never tell them when they're doing something that's going to destroy them. So true. And it's not just drugs either. It's like you can get caught up, especially these days. I see it all the time, with these, especially with reality TV. You know, not, not just when you have a hit record. I mean, you know, with reality TV, it's so quick, meteoric, and short-lived. Mm. Um, that these kids get thrown into, um, you know, the machine um, and they have no help. They believe their own hype. If they don't have good people around them, family, good friends, whatever, to tell them that it's all bullshit, mm-hmm. um, doesn't really, none of it means anything. Um, and that it probably won't last. Um, they don't, and if they don't have that around them and, uh, and those good people to kind of tell them, tell them that, it can affect them um, emotionally and mentally. Mm. Um, and I think there's not enough, especially now with, with, uh, with Twitter and social networks where you can get, I, this is how I equate it. Like I remember um, having the love from general public. Can you shut that door? Having the, the love from, from people and fans and, and, and loving that. But I also remember, you know, the other side of it which is going to be there. You're not going to please everyone. You're not going to make everyone happy. And of course I, I was that heartthrob thing. So I was never going to make kind of men <laughs> who I probably wanted to you know, listen to my music, but never going to make them happy. And of course I got a lot of hate from them. And, you know, nowadays you get it like arrows coming from a, um, from a battlefield. It just comes at you, you know, and whether you read it or not, it's there and it yeah. goes in and you can feel it, you know, and, and it's, if you're not prepared, um, and you're not ready for the backlash, um, and, and people literally hating you for no real reason. And the people that don't know you, if you're not ready for that, it's going to affect you. And, you know, I don't know what it's like, uh, 
in Canada, but like there, there are certain shows in England that have been so successful, like the show called Love Island, mm. where, you know, it's, it is what it is. It's, it's very much kind of pretty boy TV and they're all, you know, washed abs and, uh, and beautiful people and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get thrown into the spotlight and it's huge TV ratings and people love them. They're on the front of the, the red top, uh, you know, uh, tabloids and, uh, and the British press is renowned for, you know, building people up and then just knocking them down. Uh, and there's been three suicides by contestants on, on that show alone. You know, so it is a serious thing and it is yeah. something that I think needs to be addressed um, and, you know, for me, I feel like they need to have uh, therapy. I think they need yeah. therapists on hand to, to deal with something that is extraordinary to, a, to a, a young person. You know, that's not something that you normally would have to deal with. You know, hate coming at you from millions of people for no real reason because they, they don't know you. They don't, they don't understand. Uh, they're just going along with the tabloidness of it all. Um, and it, it's... It's hard, you know, because I've been through the machine and I've seen that I had good people around me. My, my family was around. My father was, was there. He was co-managing me at the time. My brother was my drummer, still is. I had people to kind of keep my head in the clouds and tell me I was being a dick if I was or, or not to believe, you know, all the good stuff, the, mm-hmm. the, all the hype see all over the, the, the press and everything else. Um, I, you know, I come from a good grounding. And, and I think that kept my feet on the ground, but I could easily have gone off the rails easily. You know, drugs is there, it, it, you know, <laughs> because you get money. So money, there's drugs and, and it's, it's easy to fall into those trappings and fall into the, into the wrong way of life. So, you know, I'd like to see these TV shows, um, you know, take a little bit of, um, you know, of a, of these stories and, and actually do something about it. I wonder if they, I hate to say something like this, but I wonder sometimes if the reason is they want to keep people agitated or they want them to be more entertaining in a way that gets them more ratings. Do you know? Well, of course, they, yeah. They're so, going to pick, the, so they're they're not, pick the characters that are, you know, unstable anyway. Exactly. And I feel yeah. like, like that's more of a priority to them than these mental health of others. Um, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I think you are absolutely right. But I do think there is a wave of, from the public um, of people, people that are seeing this happening and, and want them to, to take a little bit of responsibility. Hmm. Yeah, well, I'm glad that things worked out for you in a way that yeah. you've, you've had a stable life and a great, you have a great family and everything. Uh, so what a blessing that is. Oh, it is a blessing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I've got be- three beautiful children and a gorgeous wife and, uh, you know, and a good life. I'm able to make money from playing music. I mean, I remember, I mean, I remember Roger Daltrey saying to me once back in the day, like, you know, fancy getting paid for what you love doing. Mm-hmm. I know how lucky I am, and I'm very, very grateful for it. Thank goodness that you're able to do that, because not a lot of people can say that, that you know? Know about their job, yeah. absolutely. No, I, and I realize that I'm probably in a, you know, five percenter in that respect. <laughs> um, what's one of the strangest gifts that you've ever received from one of your fans? Does anything stand out for you? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, God, I've had all sorts of weird things from, I, I remember somebody sent me a coconut to sign. <laughs> that was a bit weird. <laughs> and they, can um, you just mail this back to me? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, had, I, had a, I had a horse's head thrown on stage once. Pantomime wow. like, you know, one that you put on your mouth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the bass player ended up putting it on. I think that the, the creepiest thing I ever got sent in the mail was back in the heyday, like in 91, um, there were girls kind of camping outside the house and things like that. And it's that classic pop star thing. Mm. And we, we were sent um, in the mail um, some photographs that a fan had jumped over the fence and crawled into the house through like the dog flap, you know, yeah. <laughs> and take, gone around the house and taken photographs of all sorts of things in the house, the bedrooms, you know, bathrooms, whatever, and taken the photos and then sent them to me to sign. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, it's uh, the mind of Creepy. a, you know, the mind of a probably 14, 15 year old girl probably thought it was, you know, perfectly fine to uh, break into someone's house and take photos. And then, <laughs> but the fact that she sent them to me to sign, I thought, is that, I didn't know whether to call the police or tell her off or. <laughs> yeah. What, yes. Like, what do you do after that? <laughs> oh yeah. my goodness. I'd but, probably you know, was... talk to the parents or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think we did. I, I think we talked to her. I think my, I think my father talked to her and, and just said like, like, what you did there was probably illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I remember there was another time talking about the girls outside the house. My mum was always very nice to the, to the fans outside the house. And um, there was this one time where, probably early days actually, where one of the fans were like ringing the bell and saying, I really, really need to use the toilet. Can, you, can I come in and use the toilet? And my mum being lovely as she goes, yeah, okay, I guess you can do that. She came in and let her use the loo. And what we didn't know is that she stole some toilet paper, told a roll of toilet paper and took it outside and was like selling it, selling the, <laughs> it off like a couple of, at a time and a pound a pop. <laughs> she was then forever known as Belinda wow. Bogroll. <laughs> she was way ahead of her time. This is normal now. <laughs> yeah, she was an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Unreal. Um, how have you taken care of your voice for over the years when you go on the road and do you have rituals that you do to care for yourself? I do. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't so good back then, although um, Roger, um, I keep mentioning Roger because he basically, you know, he was like a father figure to me back then. Mm -hmm. He had this thing back then that he taught me. Um, it's like a voice up, voice warm up thing where you grab <laughs> you grab this gauze right, with him and you hold your tongue and you do these kind of vocal warm-up things. And I, I had this like image of him holding himself. I mean, you can imagine Roger holding his tongue is right and you go, gee, gee, go, go. <laughs> so I did that for a while. <laughs> Roger was hilarious doing that. Um, I don't do that so much now. I do have a vocal warm-up thing that I do before every single gig. Um, and uh, you know, I don't I don't drink before a gig these days. I used to. <laughs> Um, because I, it, it definitely dries up your, your vocal cords. Um, but it's important. Um, I, I think a lot of, as we're talking about young kids that come into, um, you know, fame early, early days and have to and go in and do gigs and stuff. And uh, if they don't warm up, you always find it after like six months to a year, they got to cancel gigs because they've got laryngitis. It happened to Adele, it happened to oh. Ed Sheeran, it happened to... You know, you hear it a lot, don't you? Um, so yes. it is important. And I drink a lot of water. You know, I, 
I think it's important to to keep, you know, it is a muscle. And uh, I mean, you know, back then I got, I remember I used to drink all the time and like, and I guess when you're younger, you can kind of, uh, you can do it, you know, but mm. these days as you start getting older, it, it definitely, I mean, my voice, I think has gone down a couple of tones. So I've had to, had to kind of adapt some of my old songs. I, I listen to my old records. I'm like, bloody hell, I can't reach those notes anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's only so much you can do about that's just nature happening to you, right? Yeah, it does happen. It does. I mean, you know, my voice now, I used to have a very kind of a pure tone and now I'm like bloody Brian Adams. It's, it's, yeah, I want, I, I like that though. I'm a yeah. big fan of the rasp as long as it's not contrived. Like oh, of course, somebody oh, who's no. got, who's, who's really pushing and faking who's a rasp make, in their voice no. drives me nuts. I completely agree. I completely agree. But when it, it has just comes natural. out natural and it hits so nice, it's great. <laughs> oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is when you get raspy like that, which I have now, I just become like that is it's way less controllable. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, um, you never know what you're going to get from gig to gig. <laughs> Open your mouth. Am I going to get the good rasp or am I going to get the one that kind of breaks and goes crazy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is this, if I, if I crack on this note, is it going to crack in the right spot? Is it going to, yeah. oh, it's so risky. <laughs> you have to, you have to hit the sweet spot, you know, and sometimes <laughs> it's just not that. Uh, I think it all depends on, Depends on you know what if you had a you know a couple of drinks the night before or if you if you had a curry or you know <laughs> it, it all depends on all sorts of things because it is you know it's a muscle it, it reacts to different things. Absolutely. Um, now in two thousand two you collaborated with Adam. I want to say his last name correctly. Schlesinger. Yeah. Of Fountains yeah, of Wayne. Him. Who yes, uh, God bless him because uh, he just passed from COVID unfortunately. Um, and what was the collaboration? Did you go, what kind of a relationship um, did you establish there? We, uh, we met, Adam and I met in New York uh, back in kind of late 90s, I think maybe 97, something like that. Hmm. And f- he just formed Fountains of Wayne. And so he was one of the bands kind of in that, in kind of, in the kind of Greenwich Village kind of uh, um, New York that were playing at the Bowery Ballroom and, uh, you know, places like that. They hadn't made it. Um, and we, so we met and started writing songs together. Um, and he was always just genius pop songwriter. Mm. I, I, I loved, I remember seeing them play um, back then in a small club. I was playing the same place. I, I had a band called Ebb at the time, EBB. Mm. And uh, we were playing the same circuits. And um, they'd started to have a following. Um, and I don't know if you know any Fountains of Wayne, but they're just I know classic. the big hit. Yeah, like Stacey's mum. Mm-hmm. Well, go back, go back and get, there's a, an album called Radiation Vibe, I think it's called, or is, I think that's it. Anyway, the, the, the hits, the song, the big song from that album is called Radiation Vibe. So many amazing, great classic pop nuggets on that, on that record. So Adam nice. had a, he had a, an absolute gift for writing fantastic pop songs, like real pop sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wrote a few songs back then and, uh, you know, stayed in contact and, uh, you know, I, I put, um, in 2002, I took a song that we wrote back then called Stay Away Baby Jane. I put that on one of my albums and it ended up being uh, the first single from that album. And it did mm. quite well, actually. Um, and so that was an Adam song. And so Adam and I kept in contact and then Fountains of Wayne went off to have, you know, great success. And then Adam just flew. He ended up like he had a, uh, an Oscar nomination at one point. I mean, ah. you know, I think he, he was... 
he was doing really well and, and I always knew he would um, do well because he was, he was just a genius uh, pop songwriter. Mm. I mean, he, he wrote a, a lot of the songs from Crazy Ex, My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, the, the TV show. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, his discography is uh, very eclectic <laughs> uh, and he had a lot of success. Um, and, and I just, I tell you what, I also met up with him when I first moved here uh, to LA. He was over here with Fountains of Wayne and I joined the band uh, playing guitar and, and backing vocals and we did the Conan O'Brien show with Harry Shearer. Yes! Who was, who was, the, who was Derek Smalls in Spinal Tap. For, the, for those Legend. who know that, legendary Derek Smalls. And he also is the, uh, most of the voices in The Simpsons. Like he does uh, Mr. Burns and he mm -hmm. does, uh, what's the next door neighbor? Hey, neighbor. Uh, Ned Flanders. <laughs> Ned Flanders. Ned <laughs> Flanders. He does Mr. Burns. Yeah. So, yeah. And he did, uh, he also plays the Scottish uh, uh, caretaker in school. Groundskeeper <laughs> Willie. Ground, yeah, so yeah, you know these things, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so Harry was an absolute legend. So that was the last time I saw um, Adam. Actually, uh, we we were in a little, in that band together, and we did a couple of gigs as well here in LA. Um, just a lovely, lovely man, and incredibly talented. And I was just more than shocked to hear uh, about about his death. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he's my age, and I just way too young. It just doesn't seem real. It still doesn't seem real. And, and just way too young and just so talented and had so much ahead of him. Uh, and I, I'm going to miss him. It's a, it was a real, real shame. So you, any of you listeners out there, go and check out Fountains of Wayne and go back to their early, early stuff. I mean, it, listen, every record was brilliant. Yeah. But the early stuff I loved because it was, just, it was maybe it was a time for me, like late 90s, just genius. I should probably do an episode about them, to be honest. Yeah, why not? Get, you should get some of the guys on. Um, yeah. Joey, the, the guitar player, uh, mm -hmm. and the singer, Chris, he's really great. And, and uh, I'm, I'm sure they would, they would love to do it, yeah. If you love and you don't, you could live, but you won't. Why not try not to care, just like him? question from one of our listeners named Andrew, good friend of the show. He wants to know what your basic guitar rig looks like. <laughs> well, over the years, that has changed a lot. Um, my favorite up till probably a year ago um, was literally I had a um, orange uh, 130, AD 130, which I still think is the best sounding um, mm. rich distortion 
out there. I mean, I, I love that old amp, but it kind of, it kind of fell apart. You know, I've been touring forever. Um, and, and I would have like a tube screamer. Um, I, I've always had a big muff. <laughs> oh, wow. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, big yeah. muff, for, for those of you who don't know, is a guitar <laughs> pedal. <laughs> I'm not just being rude. I've always had a big muff. Um, um, what else do I have um, in there? Some kind of tremolo or, um, you know, flange unit uh, is, is always in there. But I've, and this guy sounds like uh, he, he probably is a, a, an original analog type of guy. If he's asking about a guitar rig, he probably is. So he's probably going to think I'm some kind of philistine right now. But, <laughs> I've, re <laughs> but I've recently moved to um, a Kemper amp, which is a digital has everything uh, mm. in a little box and like looks like a little lunch box. And for gigging, it has changed my life mm. because for a guitar player, um, you know, it was always a nightmare. You know, I love, I love the, the whole, the feel and, and just plugging up of an analog setup. Um, uh. And I still had that in the studio, you know, to, to make you happy. Um, but for live, it, it, it was, it took, you know, an hour or so to get everything out, the van, it's a heavy two-man job, get it all together, set it all up. And of course, you know, the older an analog gear, you know, there will always be one pedal that didn't work or a lead that was just, you know, playing up and it was just forever like crackling things and like, oh, bloody hell, my rig's not working or whatever. Anyway, so I moved to the digital side, the dark side, <laughs> and I've got my camper amp and I literally just you know, plonk it beside me, plug it in, and I've got my foot pedal, which has all my old. Um, I can actually model the amplifiers that I had before. I've got my, I've got my Fender Twin um, modulation. I've got my old uh, orange uh, modulation that I like, and it literally, you know, to an untrained ear, you wouldn't tell the difference. This guy probably, w probably would, and uh, I do <laughs> apologise. I'm, I'm saying sorry to him now, but I, I, I took the easy road. <laughs> it's okay, Andrew. I'll forgive you. It's fine. I hope Andrew, please it. forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> he had one more question relating to the guitar player in you. Um, what's the uh, most exciting up and coming guitarist that you know of right now? Well, I'm going to say my son. Yeah. <laughs> Look out for the name Indiana Hawks. Nice. Because, uh, he's only 14, bless him. And he's only been playing for only six months, but he is spectacular. Wow. You know, he's... I remember playing him Prince, um, you know, like Purple Rain or Let's Go Crazy was what got him going. I played him Let's Go Crazy even before he played guitar and he just lost his mind. He's like, I want to do that. He's like, that is, that is, I, I am going to be as good as Prince, you know, and anyone that would say that, you know, I can feel the drive uh. in him. I can see, you know, he gets up and he just plugs in and plays, you know, much to, uh, the disgust of his sister who he shares a bedroom with <laughs> but um but now you know he's playing you know the, he plays the, the solo to the one and only which is it, it is ridiculous it's a it's a crazy solo originally played by nick kershaw and all the guitarists that i've had in my bands over the years no one's ever got it right and uh. indy has managed to to nail it which is quite spectacular after six months of playing guitar i mean you know he's got a little ways to go but he is he's pretty great how proud you must be that's me. i really am i really am i'm proud of all of my kids you know they're wow. all they're all and they are all following in my footsteps as well you know my my daughter's a great singer and my my son is a, a musical theater um darling yes <laughs> that's his thing 
What's more important to you as a listener of music? Uh, li- do you listen more for the lyrics or the compo- like the composition of the music? Or is it just a bit of both? Yeah, it's, it's both, to be honest with you. Um, I have... Uh, I, I, I am a music lover. I, re- I really am. And I love it to, I love to discover um, new music. And it's, uh, you know, we've always, and I, what I'm loving is, is rediscovering you know, music um, with my children, you know, yeah. um, and, and I love it when they bring stuff to me as well. I, I love that. Uh, mm-hmm. But like Indy's when it, Indy comes into me and says, Oh my God, dad, have you heard Led Zeppelin? I'm like, I may have. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and he's like, check this guitar solo out from Gary Moore, you know. And, just, and so I love, I love that. And I'm, it's, it's like rediscovering albums. I'm like, oh, you know the album? You need to go and listen to, uh, you know, Blood and Chocolate by Elvis Costello. Go, go on, just go and do it. Go lock yourself in a room. Mm. Go and listen to that and come back and we'll discuss. So yeah. I love that. I love that kind of side of it um, uh, with my kids. Um, but, you know, there's nothing cr- quite like creating. Uh, and I love the studio. Um, I love that that creative spark of of you know walking in with a blank canvas and coming out with something. I mean, whether it's good or not, it's it's something that wasn't there that you mm. you've created. You know, I love I love that feeling. What a feeling! Yeah, um, that's what I was saying. From the other side of the coin, as a writer, um, do where do you usually go towards for yourself, uh, lyrics or music or both? Um, I. I love it when I have a concept to start with, you know, and even better if I have a title. So if I have a title and a concept, then mm. I can run with it. Um, yes. <laughs> very often, I can't, I, you know, I'm, I, I find music um, easier to come by. So I can sit down with a guitar and just, you know, just play just a riff or something, you know, just come because... It just comes, you know, no yeah. matter what it is, it, 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 I know it's there. Um, lyrics, lyrics are a little bit more difficult, um, but, um, I, you know, I think you have to work a little bit more at, the, at that. This mm. is, which is why I love to have a concept or, or a beginnings of a lyric or a title um, to, to work to, because then I can kind of play my little thing that I've just come up with and then, you know, fit something into it, you know? Is I, the worst, I, which happens like probably 80% of the time, the worst, my, the hardest way to write a song is to, is to write the music and not have any lyrics. And then you're like, shit. Think about yeah. It. <laughs> it feels more like you're filling in the blanks at that point than, yeah, than yeah. a natural flow. But Are you a writer as well? Yes. Yeah. Um, but for me, one of the best feelings when I'm writing, like composing the music part is when the chorus comes easily. Mm. The rest of it seems like it's a, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine because yeah. I got the chorus. But when yeah. I come up with a brilliant verse and then I go into a pre-chorus and I'm yeah. can't it's get so the true. you're just no, like no, because, exactly because uh, if you love the verse, then you know you've got to better that verse with the chorus. You have to still outdo yeah. yourself. It's yes. one of the things that I learned really um, early on from Nick because he is all about the chorus and and he very often writes the chorus to start with. And one thing that he taught me, uh, which I do a lot, is writing in, in reverse. Mm. So you've got a chorus, then write the pre-chorus to go into that chorus mm. and find somewhere, uh, some different way to get into the chorus. And then when you've written the, the pre-chorus, go back and find an interesting way to get into that pre-chorus with yes. the verse. Because when you do that, 
you go to different places, you end up in different keys and, and interesting things happen. And uh, ah. it's, it's a really good exercise. Yeah. Thank you for telling me that. I'll yeah, yeah, give it a shot. go. Give it a go. I'll, I'll give you some homework. You know, you yeah, go off and, uh, we'll come back to you with a new track. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that's and the thing too is that you want to get the listeners' attention right off the bat. So it's important with the verses is just as much in in that aspect, right? Mm, yeah. You don't want to lose them in the first thirty seconds of the no. song before they can even get there. Of course, of course. I mean, and, and then often, you know, I like to actually start maybe sometimes with a little bit of a chorus mm -hmm. um, before you go into a verse. So it gives a little nod to it, even if it's just the chords to the chorus mm -hmm. um, or, or just a line from the chorus. And then, you know, you can, is, you know, I guess it's... Hence your biggest hit. Like, well, he's, like, that does that. That does that absolutely, completely. Yeah. It's, yeah. It knocks you over the head with the, with the, with the hook. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah no i think uh pop songwriting 101 Just yeah i know well, well we could do three hours on that one couldn't we <laughs> <laughs> um what album track have you put out that you wish would have been a single i'm gonna play it on Ooh, the show that's I'm a good play, one I'm gonna, I'm gonna play a clip of it for everyone to hear um you know what there's a song um that is probably my most requested song by the fans now um, on my on my most recent album, uh, it's called John Lennon Lived Here. Ah, and it's a song that I wrote when I was 19 years old, about the first time I ever went to New York, uh, and I wanted to. Um, I, I was more excited about going to New York because I wanted to go to the places that John Lennon was famous for being photographed at, or had lived, or you know, go mm. to the Imagine Circle. Or, um, and so, so I went to New York and I wrote this lyric about that. Mm. Um, and, and then I ended up writing the, the music. Um, in fact, I wrote the song, ended up writing the song with Nick. And it's one of my favorite songs I've ever written. I was only 19 when we wrote it. Yeah. Um, but now uh, it's definitely, it's a fan favorite. And, and I, I went with a, a, a different song uh, for, for a single, a song called Aeroplane, mm -hmm. which I love and I'm proud of. Um, it was about my kids. But, uh, but that one seems to kind of have hit some kind of, uh, you know, a nerve with, with, with my fans anyway. Arrived at JFK, first day in New York, so I go for a walk. I watch as people pass me by, don't look me. Take a yellow cab to Empire State I've seen it on TV Doesn't seem real to me It's hot but I don't see the sun I don't know anyone Sirens and guns On the street where I Avenue, I have to 
Well, funnily enough, just before all this craziness hit, um, I, I had an album pretty, pretty much ready to go. Um, and, uh, you know, as we call Murphy's Law, um, it just happened at the wrong time. And uh, just as I was about to go out and do videos and photo shoots and all that kind of content stuff, I can't leave the house let alone do a photo shoot. So, yeah. so the album, um, and I've got a great team, great record label and everything behind me now. Um, and it is all very exciting. And uh, so we, we have now decided to put it off for a little while, um, which is good in one way because I can go back to the album and make sure that I'm 100% happy. And I'm sure there, there possibly will be another couple of songs here and there that, uh, that might not have made the album, but then will. So, so in the meantime, what I'm doing is concentrating on... Um, you know, doing some online shows. Um, if anyone's interested in that kind of stuff, um, go to um, liveandunfiltered.com. Or they, can just go, or they can just go to chesneyhawks.com. And they'll find everything there. Everything's there. Yeah, exactly. Have you been to Canada before? I have. Um, and uh, the last time I went to Canada, I was in Toronto or Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was in a film um called uh what was it called? It's the God, it's ridiculous, I don't know the name of the bloody film. Uh World of Warcraft. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, like based on the video game. Yeah, yeah. And the reason that I was in it was uh, it's actually quite a funny story. You probably like it. Um Duncan Jones, uh, who is the director, he's uh, he's David Bowie's son. Ah. And uh, his first film was a, a film called Moon with Sam Rockwell. And uh, it was a small budget um, sci-fi film that he used the one and only uh, in, in a really cool, interesting sync. I don't, if you've never seen the film, you should watch it. It's brilliant. Okay. Um, and it became a cult classic, like almost instantly. It's a brilliant film. And of course, Sam Rockwell's genius in it. Um, oh, and great. so he used the one and only. And that was his first film. And then we became Twitter friends because people were talking about the song that was used in a really interesting way in the film. Mm. And uh, we started talking and then he contacted me and said, I'm doing another film called Source Code with Jake Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal and I want to use the, f the song again, uh, but uh, it's too um, expensive to, to, uh, to, for the sync. Like the record label just, you know, my, my old record label wanted to charge too much for it. And he said, can you help? And I was like, yeah, I guess I could re-record. What do you want it for? And he said, I want it for a ringtone. And uh, I was like, yeah, I think we could do that. So you just want the, I am the one and only. He said, yeah, kind of. So Nick and I like got together and re-recorded a little bit of, of, uh, of the, the chorus for the one and only. And we gave it to him uh, so he could use it in the film. And uh, he was like, that is amazing. Thank you. You guys are brilliant and all that kind of stuff. And so then it became like a, like a, a little, little lappy, uh, happy kind of moment in his films, like a lucky rabbit's foot or something. And he had, to, he had to kind of use it in his next film, which was World of Warcraft. <laughs> so, and this was like a huge, like $300 million budget film, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, but this time I want you in it. I want you to be in it. So, but it's because it's a medieval thing. He wanted me to, uh, to, to do it in, as a, you know, on a lute or something. <laughs> ah. So I said, I don't really, we have a conversation. I said, I don't really know what, what do you mean? Can you, can you just, 
give me an idea and he said you know i want you to be like i am the one and only nobody i'd rather be you know so <laughs> so i i went away and recorded it with a, a lute and and, I, and so there's this medieval version of the song and um hang on a second as long as Let we me have finish audio. off that story then <laughs> yeah. quickly. So uh, he, he flew me up to uh, Toronto and uh, yeah, I guess we're okay with audio. Yeah. So he flew me up to uh, Toronto and he dressed me up like a medieval bard, <laughs> which you can see if you, you probably find it online somewhere. And I was, I played this medieval bard when I was playing the one and only in the corner of, of this ridiculous medieval pub <laughs> and uh, and so that that was that was my last time in Canada <laughs> wow a long-winded way around of, of getting that to you <laughs> no it's cool now that, that you have this every time he makes a movie now you've got to have a, a little piece of you in that movie I would say that's great his idea. last film was called Mute uh, which was a, a a film starring Alexander Sarsgaard on Netflix I think it was mm. and and he used the song in a, another interesting kind of sci-fi way because it was it was like a, in some kind of dystopian uh, almost mad max type of uh, you know film and so he used it in a, as part of a video game <laughs> that's brilliant i love it um i was going to ask you a couple silly questions to end off our chat today um what food clothing item toy etc would make you nostalgic for the 90s something that was really big to you then wow oh my goodness um food clothing item or toy yeah. well clothing item would definitely be my leather jacket yes <laughs> because i was kind of known for for that at the time that was my staple it was a you know, jeans, white t-shirt, black leather jacket, and a red strap. Strat, sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's true. Do you still have the jacket? I, you know what, that I think it was given away in a in an auction. That that original leather jacket. I wish I just still did have it. And oh, the, that's cool. And the, and the original red strat was also given away in an auction. I, I mean, it's great that we made money for charity, but I really, I wish I had that now. Not mm. as much as my son wishes I still had it. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. He's like, Dad, why did you have to get rid of that? Oh, well, it's been, it's been such an amazing time talking to you. Really, really loved it. So thank you for having a great conversation with me. Um, do you want to give any parting messages to the fans listening today? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It was really lovely. I, I enjoyed it too. It was, it was nice to talk, uh, you know, deeply about things. And I, yeah. I appreciate a, a good interview when I, when I see it. Wow. Um, and as far as a message to people out there, um, uh, it was just, it's just nice uh, to know that uh, there are some people in, in Canada that, that might be interested in, in what I had to say. So you know, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And if you are interested in anything, go to chesneyhawks.com. Daddy, please make me an aeroplane I want another one just the same I want it fly With the sun in my eyes I walk you home in the rain from the fair 
Are you cold? I'll give you my coat to wear. I'll treasure this moment I almost missed. These moments make up a life, and you wanna take it all in. Just fall in. So many snapshots in time. Huge thanks to Chesney Hawks for doing such a wonderful interview with me. That last song you heard was Aeroplane, which was the song he mentioned that he had written for his kids. So I thought I'd share a little piece of that before heading out for the day. Next week's guest, Tal Bachman, Canadian rock royalty right there. She's So High was his massive hit in the 90s, and we're going to talk about that and how that came to be. And also all the great things he has on his plate nowadays. He's really busy and active and working and amazing. So tell Bachman next episode. Everyone take care. We'll see you then. Social media. Yeah, we've got it. Send us an email. Dope Nostalgia Podcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Nostalgia Dope. Or on Insta, Dope underscore Nostalgia. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work. Do you want to hit this? Yeah. Do you want to hit this too? The Horror Comedy Podcast. With Jake and Haley. Come get high and scared with us. Wednesdays and Sundays. Sundays.